Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're both back from vacation. We're back. We're back, everybody. Refreshed. I talked yesterday about how it is kind of difficult to leapfrog over a week's worth of news <laughs> that you kind of want to talk about. You know, right. you see these headlines and think like, oh, I wonder what so-and-so would have to say about that. And, <laughs> well, just got to all go under the bridge. Uh, today, uh, you know, as we did yesterday, we're going to talk a little more about what's been happening in the last couple of days, including the latest leaks about what Trump uh, might have had stashed away in Mar-a-Lago, uh, the substance of them, and the very familiar way this information is being released to the well, public. Well, I'm glad you used the word leak just now, mm-hmm. because that's exactly what these are. You know, the, both the Washington Post and the New York Times today, um, in these articles about what a- appear to be uh, documents related to foreign countries' nuclear programs, uh, quoted uh, an official who was not authorized to speak about the issue, right? Yeah. That means a leak. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a leak. Uh-huh. Which technically, if you want to get technical about this, is a violation of the Espionage Act. Everyone's doing it now, John. <laughs> Everyone's doing Everybody's it. Everybody's doing it. We're all uh-huh. guilty of espionage under that extremely broad and <laughs> strange law. Yeah, so we're going to we're going to talk about that and just how it's so uncomfortable to be trying to choose between like are you are you hashtag team FBI or hashtag I know, team right? Trump? Both are so bad. Good grief. Uh, we'll talk about what it means that uh, a bunch of former Pentagon chiefs are warning that the relationship between the U.S. military and the civilian population is under strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will ask what we've learned from Russia's hearing on U.S. funded biolabs, the meeting that's been underway for the last couple of days. We are going to talk about Russia and China's new deal to pay for gas in rubles and won. We will ask why on earth people would advocate for going to war over the Solomon Islands, not to diminish the importance of the Solomon Islands or disrespect their sovereignty or whatever. But like, man, we have to be willing to muster our military to prevent anyone from exercising any decision anywhere, anytime that discomfits us for a moment. Can you imagine being president of the United States? And having to convince the American people that it's worth going to war over the Solomon Islands. Because yeah, we haven't spent several decades, you know, acting like the Solomon Islands are the, the linchpin of our national security strategy. Yeah, it would be a tough sell. Um, in a very strange story, we're going to ask why Peter Thiel, internet villain, mm-hmm. billionaire mm-hmm. Peter Thiel, is suddenly so interested in getting women to put information about their periods online. Nice. Is the biggest funder in a new uh, quote, I'm doing air quotes here, Femtech company, which isn't those uh, gun bras that you saw in the Austin Powers movie, (laughs) although that would be cooler. Uh, Yeah, we have that. It's an outline of the show to come. There's a ton more. But of course, we're going to start with a a vacation report from John. Oh, yeah. I I was very uh, fortunate. Uh, in that it, this was kind of it was kind of a vacation and kind of work. Uh, it was this thing that I'm doing part time. It's a human rights issue. Um, just very, very briefly, there's a there's a Nigerian by the name of uh, Mazi Namdi Kanu uh, who uh, wants to he's pushing the Nigerian government to allow referendum for the people of the state of Biafra to um to secede from Nigeria and create their own country. Now, there are 70 million 
Biafrans, they're almost all Christians, and uh, the government of Nigeria is Muslim. There was a civil war in the 60s. Millions died, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we went to uh, to London to speak with uh, two members of the House of Lords that are interested in these human rights issues and with a bunch of, of journalists, BBC, ITV, ITN, Guardian, uh, the Times of, of London, and then went on to Jerusalem. I, I, I was shocked to have a meeting with uh, Yair Lapid, the, the prime minister, the really? interim prime minister. Yes. He saw us at the last minute of the last day that we were in. Uh, crazy, right? I, in fact, they let me keep my my uh, Knesset entry badge as a souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But anyway. That's not the important part. The important part is what I just happened to learn while I was in these spots. You know, I was there until just a a day before Liz Truss was uh, was named prime minister. And uh, and listen, nobody and I mean, nobody likes this woman. They say she's stupid. They say she's cruel to those around her. They say she's in over her head. Uh, it's just. Can I inform you about my my latest my favorite tweet of the day so far? I don't know why this tickles me. It's just like, yeah, Liz Truss. She's just been she's been bonkers for a while, and I guess that's the best that they could come up with in the Conservative Party. Yeah, um, the wife of former Minister Johnny Mercer got on Twitter after her husband was fired to call the Prime <laughs> Minister an imbecile. I just think this is like imagine. Imagine, you know, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell doing this if Elaine Chow had been fired as uh, tra- what was she like a right. trans, not transport. I can't remember. Tra- she was some she was some in some cabinet um, position. Yeah. The tweet was uh, he asked her, why would you do this? Who's going to be better at this role than me? Which of your mates gets the job? You promised a meritocracy. PM says, I can't answer that, Johnny. And the wife interjects here, says the system stinks and treats people appallingly. Best person I know sacked by an imbecile at Liz Truss. Crazy. I just think, and tagged her. Yeah. I had, and tagged the correct Liz Truss because the other uh, <laughs> thread running through here is that there is a woman on Twitter whose name is Liz Trussell. And her handle is Liz Truss. And world leaders from across the globe have been congratulating her on her ascension to the prime ministership. And she has been responding uh, in comedic fashion. So if you need a little bit of a a break, you can go look that up. One of the things that was a theme was uh, the the guy that she beat, the former chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, and his name escapes me. Um, His parents, I think, hailed from Pakistan. Mm -hmm. His his campaign for Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak, yeah. thank you. So Rishi Sunak's campaign was, I can work with labor. I can work with the liberal Dems. Uh, we need to bring the country together. We're facing lots of challenges, inflation, the economy, etc. And Liz Truss's campaign was, I'm going to crush my enemies. I right? mean, and and that I mean seriously. So yeah. I I said to one of the uh, journalists I was talking with, well, what about Pretty Patel, you know, in the States, she gets a lot of press, not very positive because of her role in the Julian Assange thing. And he said, she is the crueler version of Liz Truss Mm -hmm. to the point where they call her ugly Patel instead of her name is P-R-I-T-I, Pretty Patel. They call her ugly Patel. She was defeated in that first round. But um, they said that uh, the only reason that Liz Truss uh, is going to survive 
politically the next two years is because um, labor, the labor party's in disarray. Yes, this is what I was. I talked to Jamal Thomas yesterday from the Fault Lines Morning Show, who had been in London. Yeah, labor seems to have labor seems to have really successfully purged itself from anyone with a a coherent left wing ideology. That's right, and especially now, especially given Britain's. Um, you know, re- real bloodlust for this war in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, I don't know what they. I I really don't know what they can offer in opposition. I don't really know what they stand for. I, I mean, no. it's obviously like there are going to be some differences on issues of like privatization domestically and things sure. like that. But when you look at you know the the conditions that Britain is suffering under. You know, a lot of them have have geopolitical roots. Oh, and if yeah. you can't change oh, those geopolitical roots, then you can't. You know what I mean? What are you going to do other That's than right. say, like, you know, That's this right. can say I'm going to cut taxes. Labor will say we're going to tax the rich more. Great. Mm-hmm. Support it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they've really they've really purged themselves of, uh, and of you, a spine. And you can't <laughs> win an, a, an, a big national election like that by just saying vote for me. Because I'm not the other guy. I mean, we, that doesn't the, work. The U.S. Democratic Party has mm-hmm. been is hanging on to that by a thread. One other thing about Liz Truss is after she uh, met with the Queen on, um, I guess it was Monday. I think it was. Uh, she gave a speech that the press thought was shocking in its call for empire. Mm. This is something that nobody expected. First of all, she criticized the United States. Um, saying that my jaws on know, the floor, right? but but not in a way you <laughs> might imagine. She? Uh, she was saying that Britain was the greatest empire that the world had ever seen, Ooh. and that Britain needs to return to the glory of that Ooh. empire. Right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, it it needs to stop being a, a yes man to the United States. Okay. Uh, which is fine. Sure. Get behind that. But love actually but is her, all about that, you know. But her idea of not being a yes man is to. Be the one that initiates. We need these to start overst- these wars ourselves. Yes. Is that it, it? Was, it was stunning to me. Yeah. And then she also told people that, look, the economy's terrible. It's going to get worse. Inflation is 18 percent yeah. in the UK right now. And energy inflation, I, uh, I'm i going to talk about it later in the show. Um, it's 1400 percent right now over a year ago. It's projected to go to 1800 percent. And she's telling people tough luck. Yeah. You have to tough it out. Yeah. I mean, we're British after all. I would. I <laughs> I'm just, I'm sort of thinking back about U.S. enthusiasm for following Britain into war. And it has not been as, uh, uh, you know, we haven't been as amped to, to go to their support than they have been to come to ours. No. So I'd like to see that'd be great. No, I bet the U.S. would turn down a lot more opportunities for conflict if it was, you know, going to have to follow the U.K. into battle. Yeah, you can say that again. Maybe that would be good. Maybe Liz Truss is onto something. And real quickly, I asked also about Julian Assange and I asked every and we, we talk to like, you know, the 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 Walter Cronkite of of the UK mm-hmm. and, and um, among others. And I asked about Julian Assange and he said, you know, the funny thing about about this whole Assange situation to me, to him, is that so many of us thought that there was actually a chance at some point that Julian Assange might get a fair shake. There was never a chance he was going to get a fair shake. And he said there's never a chance because. Britain does as the United States tells it to do. And the U.S. told the U.K. 
extradite Julian Assange. Yeah. And it didn't matter what the court said or what the judges said or the Supreme Court or this court or that court or the European Court of Human Rights. Julian Assange is coming to the United States. And he says, you know, the real disappointment here, and you see it in public opinion polls, is the U.S. says we want Julian Assange and the U.K. says, yes, master. And then a CIA spouse or NSA spouse or whomever she happens to be hits and kills a kid on a bicycle and then flees. Mm -hmm. And the UK says to the US, send her back so we can prosecute her. And they say, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. Diplomatic immunity. Yeah. They're still still upset about that. I would be upset. I would be upset too. I would too. If we're talking about Harry Dunn, who was riding his motorcycle and then Dan Sakula's. Is is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just just so people don't. But they're still very angry about it and they have every right to be. Yeah, absolutely. It was an appalling uh, shame and display of cowardice. Uh, A couple other headlines we can get to before. Hey, John, who doesn't love a good display of nuclear readiness? You see, we tested tested a Minuteman three ICBM. Nothing you know, I to didn't do even with. Realize there was a three. Yeah, it's you know third time's a charm. Nothing to do with a global global conditions right now. Just happened to be testing. No, that this is at everything. all a message to the Chinese. No, which is fine. Whatever. Everybody tests. Everybody sure. you know times these tests to to coincide. Absolutely. With events. So it's not surprising that we do either. Um, and another story that I want to talk about um, in some more detail in the coming weeks, but feels worth mentioning here. Uh, on September 1st, uh, the American Indian Movement Grand Governing Council launched a walk for justice for Leonard Peltier. They are going to walk from Minneapolis through Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. They're going to end in Washington, D.C. on November awesome. 14th. They are calling for clemency for Leonard Peltier, who was con- convicted of aiding and abetting right. in the murder of two FBI agents in a trial that really was uh, uh, just a shambles and yeah. a shame fr- from start flawed. to finish, right? And yeah. from, from his extradition from Canada uh, through every aspect of it. So, you know, they're, they're calling for clemency for Leonard Peltier, who they call a political prisoner. Um, and I'm hoping... In the coming days and weeks, we'll be able to speak to someone who can talk to us a little more. That'll be exciting. Yeah. Leonard Pelletier um, has developed some very serious health problems uh, related to his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finally, after so many years that he's been in prison, the FBI finally came out and said, well, you know, we accused him of shooting these FBI agents. He didn't really shoot them. Yeah, it's astonishing. The government has come out and said uh, more than once that this is, you know— it, it's mm-hmm. undisputed that you intimidated witnesses, right. that you've fudged information, and yet none of this has been enough, uh, I guess, to overturn his Awful. convictions or to get anyone to take the political bullet that I guess they think yeah. granting clemency would be for him. So, you, you know, there was talk at the very end of the Obama administration that Obama would at least commute his sentence, if yeah. not pardon him, and allow him to come home and receive the medical treatment that he need, he's needs. He's an old man. He's an old man. He's almost 80 years old. Yeah. And nothing ever happened. Yeah. Nothing Who, ever that, happened. A little confusing, but whatever. Uh, but was convicted of aiding and abetting yes. the murder, not of... Correct. Doing the murder. Correct. And the two people who were arrested in connection with the same events were acquitted. Yes. So you were, I guess, aiding and abetting some people who then were acquitted of a crime because they were they were found to have shot in self-defense. All very confusing. Scandalous. Uh, 
We're going to talk about that in the future. We have a couple more headlines, but we might as well dive into the show. We can save my other tidbits for, for the end of things. We'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Europe is planning for one of its most difficult winters in memory. As governments from the UK to Germany to Greece and Cyprus warn their citizens that electric and gas bills will be as much as 1,800% higher than they were last year, thanks to the absence of cheap Russian gas. In England, Prime Minister Liz Truss said that Britons will have to tough it out. But the media there are reporting that it would be cheaper, get this, for some small businesses to close for a year than it would be to remain open and pay high energy bills. Meanwhile, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, called yesterday for shelling around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to cease, and Ukraine is seeking a safe route for residents of the area to evacuate. And President Biden said that the U.S. would not designate as a state sponsor of terrorism uh, Russia, not because Russia doesn't sponsor terrorism, but because to do so would cause political problems and difficulties for humanitarian aid delivery. How do you like that? I mean, why why have any label for anything <sighs> at all if it's all political uh, consideration? I've got a related story I'm going to mention to our next guest. We're, we're going to be joined now by Jeremy Kuzmarov. Jeremy is managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks again for having me. Jeremy, um, I... I I've been traveling, as as uh, Michelle said a few minutes ago, and uh, I, I was talking to one of my contacts about this ridiculous uh, designation or or lack now of designation of Russia as a sponsor of state terrorism, and I was reminded that in 2002, as we were preparing to attack Iraq, uh, we went to the Chinese. And we said, hey, listen, we we want to attack Iraq and we want your vote in the U.N. Security Council. And they said, no, we're not going to vote to attack Iraq unless you designate the Uyghurs as uh, as an international terrorist group. Well, the Uyghurs weren't international terrorists, but we said, that's fine. We'll call them terrorists. And so we did. This is like the East Turkestan independence movement. Exactly. And so we listed them on the on the list of uh, spot of uh, terrorist uh, groups at the State Department, and the Chinese abstained on our use of force uh, resolution at the United Nations. And then last year, two years ago, whenever it was, when relations with the Chinese started getting difficult again, we took them off the the list. These lists mean really nothing when it comes to state sponsors of terrorism. I think we still list the the Cubans, for example, as state sponsors of of terrorism. Uh, Should we pay any attention to stuff like this, or is this just bureaucratic political silliness that the United States is is wont to do? 
Yeah, and I, I think uh, for a long time, you know, the uh, African National Congress was list, was on that list, and you know, Nelson Mandela couldn't travel. That's right to the United States. So, I mean, it's all politicized, uh, and I mean, Ukraine. You know, Ukraine. There was an article in the New York Times uh, where uh, uh, Ukrainian commandos spoke out and admitted that they were carrying out terrorist activity, <laughs> planting bombs in police cars and. Uh, probably the the uh, Dugina assassination was an extension of that. So they they openly admitted to you know car bomb and, and terrorist acts, uh, but nobody would suggest uh, putting Ukraine on the terrorist list. And that that would raise question: Why is the U.S. funding terrorism uh, with the billions of dollars they're sending to Ukraine? So uh, you know, uh, yeah, there's a, you know other complete double standard. And I mean the war on terror. Uh, was so ridden with double standard. It's amazing that the U.S. public allowed their taxpayer dollars to be used for years to fight a war on terror when the U.S. government was supporting leading sponsors of terror in the Middle East, like the Saudi Arabian regime. Good point. Uh, which I think it was admitted in WikiLeaks documents that that was a leading. There was a memo like Hillary Clinton saying that that's a leading sponsor of terrorism uh, across the Middle East. Right. And the U.S. So, I mean— it's just sad that the double standards and, and the use of these Orwellian terms and, and how U.S. Pa- uh, taxpayer would support the war on terror when the government is actually funding terrorists, like, and, and Ukraine's the same. The U.S. government is funding terrorists in Ukraine. Jeremy, uh, President Putin said yesterday that Russia has, quote, lost nothing. Uh, unquote, since the conflict with Ukraine began. And indeed, it looks like it's the Western European countries that are having a difficult time with energy deliveries and with inflation. In the meantime, Russia continues to sell its oil and gas to countries around the world, notably China and India. Have the Europeans bitten off more than they can chew, in your view? It's it's going to be a terrible winter for them, and it seems to be because of their decision to not deal with Russia especially on these energy issues? I think so, yeah. I think we're seeing a growing divide. I mean, uh, the, the governments are so out of touch with their own people, and they're willing to inflict suffering on their own population. And I think these governments, you know, I think they're going to face a huge backlash among their people very soon. You know, there were huge protests before the COVID in, in, in France with the Yellow Vest movement. And I think something like this is going to reemerge because the lockdown seasons have ended and the you know cost of living and, and quality of life is is declining and the governments are not are openly saying they're not serving their own people. They're on some kind of quixotic uh, crusade against the Russians that is, is not practical. And I mean, they're, they're it's just not in the interest of their own population. So this is going to going to bite them. I think soon we're going to see uh, explosion of protests and, and even uprising soon. Uh, a few minutes ago, Jeremy, I alluded to a conversation that uh that uh, I had with a reporter over something that Liz Truss said. Uh, she, she's she been using very strong, very tough language uh, over the last, what, two days since she became prime minister. She's saying things like the golden age of Britain was the age of empire, that the UK shouldn't rely on the US as much as it has, and that the UK has to take the lead in confronting Russia over Ukraine. What exactly is that supposed to mean, do you think? What do you expect in Russian-British relations with this new prime minister? Because if you judge just by her rhetoric, 
it seems like things are going to get a lot worse rather than a lot better. I think so. Yeah, I, I think you know she obviously represents a hardline kind of neoconservative, uh, pro-empire position, and yeah, she's going to. Uh, you know, the UK is very heavily involved uh, in the Ukraine war. They've been training uh, Ukrainian special forces. They've been providing extensive uh, military uh, and other support. So uh, you know, it looks very clearly like that policy is going to continue. But again, how long is the British population going to put up with that? I mean, what is the interest of Brit- you know Great Britain in pursuing and, and the people living uh, there in, in pursuing that kind of policy? And as we just discussed, it's it's only bad for them. So, and uh, and what again, and where does the mandate come from? Uh, Liz Truss was elected in an internal Conservative Party referendum, right? So. Not just people who call themselves conservatives. Uh, these are dues-paying members of the British Conservative Party. They're the ones that chose her as prime minister. That comes out to less than 2% of British voters. So it's not like Liz Truss can even say that she has a mandate to lead Britain forward against Russia or in support of Ukraine. There is no mandate. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. And, you know, these supposed model Western democracies, we're seeing how hollow uh, they are in you know, country after country. I mean, here in the United States, we get leaders like Trump and we're seeing all kind of unrest here. And you're seeing that in Europe, too. These supposed model democracies really are not very democratic at all. And again, their governments are pursuing policies counter the interests of their own population. And they're really just causing half, you know, havoc. I mean, you relate to what you're saying about the nuclear uh, dangers of, of uh, um, a nuclear disaster with the war uh, being fought around a nuclear facility and the prospects uh, of a major, you know, this could escalate into a major world war, nuclear war. So what kind of leadership are we seeing in, in the Western countries? Horrible leadership. Terrible leadership. Uh, the U.S., Jeremy, including the U.S. media, I hate to say, is very concerned about reporting from Russia about U.S. biolabs. The New York Times ran an article on Sunday saying that the reporting was part of what they called a sophisticated Russian propaganda campaign. Uh, But what the Times didn't address was the admission by U.S. Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland that these biolabs are in countries all over the world. They exist. They're supposed to be partnerships between the U.S. and the host country. But we really don't know exactly what it is that they do. Does the international community, do you think, have a right to be concerned about these labs, or is this something that is just being blown out of proportion? I think they should be very concerned, and there are documents that are available publicly, uh, and Covert Action Magazine had an expose uh, yes. published by a Bulgarian journalist that uh, released these documents that pointed to an $80 million program uh, through the Pentagon to fund biological research in Ukraine. And the contract was given to a Kansas-based company, Black and Veatch. Uh, so there's quite a bit of evidence uh, that the Pentagon is funding biological research. We don't know exactly what type, but I think you know taxpayers and, and everybody has a right to know. I mean, historically, the U.S. has funded some very sinister projects. You know, uh, in the Fort Detrick, Maryland, they were funding the development of anthrax and biological weapons, and those weapons were very likely used in the Korean War. That was exposed by a journalist, Australian journalist Wilfred Burchett, who had been the first on the scene to expose the dropping the atomic bomb and how 
terrible the effects of the radiation were uh, on the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And for years, the U.S. government sought to deny that they uh, were involved with biological weapons and biological warfare in Korea. They, they, they slandered Burchett and anyone else who reported this. There was a British scientist who led a major study and found that they had uh, used biological warfare. There were pilots who testified about this. But they, they said they had been brainwashed by the Chinese. But the evidence there's, you know, seems to point to that biological warfare haven't been carried out. So this seems to be you know, a kind of repeat of that history where they're, they're just uh, trying to smear anyone who exposes something that is very disturbing and is on the level of like a Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. I mean, that horrified the world. When people learn now, the Nazi scientists had developed these hideous things like germ warfare, and the Japanese had used that in, in China. So the world, everybody should be outraged. It's an abuse of science and, and, and taxpayer dollar. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I wanted to ask you if we could go back for a minute, too, to Western Europe um, and what is shaping up to be, I think, a disastrous winter there. Uh, inflows of Russian gas and oil have ceased, and governments are telling their cis- their citizens to prepare for the worst. The UK and Germany look like they're going to have the biggest problems. Energy prices are right now, and this is just insane to me, 14%, 100%, 1,400% higher than they were a year ago. They're expected to be 1,800% higher by winter. For many families, that means that their heating bills are going to be more than their mortgage payments. In Germany, citizens have already begun to gather firewood to try to make it through the winter. In Greece today, the prime minister said that citizens must enact a mandatory 20% reduction in energy use or face criminal charges, including jail time. What effects do you think this will have on Western support for the war? How long... Do you think Western countries can keep on going, keep on supporting this policy without their their populations finally saying enough? Yeah, I mean, the, the statistics you describe are staggering, and I think it's going to blow over. Yeah, there's so much people can take, uh, and people have intelligence, uh, and they can see how their governments are, are causing this crisis. And we're going to see, I think, an explosion of protests. We saw it before with the yellow vest, you know, before the yes. COVID. The COVID pandemic seemed to quiet the protests. You know, some that believe that that was by design, and that's another issue with these bio labs. Some are suspicious, you know, the gain of function research that diseases like COVID were actually manufactured there and then leaked. But the effect of the COVID crisis was to quell the protests for. Uh, time, but you know now that the lockdowns have ended, and the situation you described is is, is a horrible one, and uh, I think we're going to see the re- revival of, of movements like the Yellow Vest movement, something even more stronger, and that's really what the elites fear. But that's the only thing that will compel them to change their policy, their ruinous policy uh, vis-a-vis Russia. The Ukrainians appear to have begun a military offensive in Kharkiv, in northeastern Ukraine. Analysts are saying that a Russian decision to move troops to the south over the past uh, several days allowed the Ukrainians a a small opening. The Ukrainians are already claiming victory in Kharkiv, and the Russians say that's ridiculous. Can you tell us what's happening there? Well, my uh, belief is that this is uh, an unwinnable war for Ukraine. This is like a Vietnam War. 
because the population, I mean, as Clausewitz said, war is politics by other means. Yes. And you have to look at the political context. Uh, the people of eastern Ukraine you know, voted for their autonomy after the coup of, of 2014 that was supported uh, heavily by the United States that imposed a government with very limited legitimacy, especially in the eastern parts of Ukraine, where their population is, is ethnic Russian majority and tied with Russia economically, and they voted for their autonomy. And then Ukraine you know, attacked them and uh, brutalized them, terrorized them for, for eight years. And they're looking to Russia as a savior, their liberators. So, uh, you know, Ukraine could, could mount these offensives and has all the weaponry at their disposal from the West, but they, they've lost the hearts and minds. They don't have legitimacy uh, and they're not going to win. I mean, they may be able to salvage uh you know, their territory in the western part of Ukraine, you know, they may have more support. There may be more support for the Ukrainian government hostility towards Russia. So, uh, you know, Russia's not going to be able to take over all Ukraine, but uh, I don't think uh, Ukraine is going to have any success in, in eastern Ukraine. And it's just a quagmire and Vietnam type situation. Uh, the Russian foreign ministry said yesterday that plans are underway for a meeting next week between President Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping. It would take place in Uzbekistan on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Samarkand. What would you expect to happen there? Or is just is this just meant to uh, to be a handshake for the cameras to show that that relations between them are good? Do you expect it to be that or, or something more substantive? I think it's more substantive. I, th- I think they're moving towards uh, a different world order, you know, uh, towards you know, strengthening their own alliance and providing a countervailing power, uh, you know, power collectively toward the United States, standing up to U.S. aggression and trying to strengthen their economies through mutual trade and developing a regional alliance and, and, and regional uh, economic relations and moving toward alternative currency, uh, alternative banking structures, uh, promoting the advancement of China's One Belt, One Road initiative, which is uh, uplifting many people from poverty and, and drawing more countries into Chinese orbit. So there's a lot uh, being planned here, and, and it really is a new world order that's taking shape. You know, the Western governments... Uh, uh, have, have failed. I mean, they, they failed their own populations and they've lost legitimacy around the world. They're not providing a good, a good world order. They're causing chaos and conflict and violence. And Russia and China are taking the lead uh, of a new, new world order that will be multipolar uh, and in which, yeah, the, the population could live a, a higher standard uh, and not be threatened with, with more aggression from the West. Jeremy, um, six NATO countries, Greece, Hungary, Portugal, Slovakia, Spain, and Turkey have not yet ratified Sweden and Finland's entry into NATO. Why the delay? This was supposed to be so important that NATO wanted it done as quickly as possible. You remember just a couple of months ago, there was talk that that Sweden and Finland had to get into NATO so quick because the Russians were going to invade and they were going to take Finland and then Sweden would fall next and NATO had to come to their rescue. And then nothing. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, this is all talk. I mean, this is just like fear-mongering and threat inflation, uh, and it only works for so long. I mean, we saw that with the Iraq war, you know, people were cowed and scared of the weapons of mass destruction, and then they saw what was really going on, and, you know, who would would support the Iraq war today? I mean, 
the leaders who orchestrated that war viewed as, as criminals or uh, you know, just terrible people. And I think, uh, you know, we're maybe slowly the tide is starting to shift. People are starting to see through the rhetoric. A lot is starting to come out about how bad the Ukrainian government is. And, you know, again, uh, maybe the main thing is that the economy, you know, countries are seeing the, the populations, that their country does not benefit economically uh, through this hardline anti-Russia policy. And, you know, NATO is starting to lose some credibility. So, it may be, you know, people are, uh, even governments are going to have to think twice about how they align themselves uh, if they want to survive and they don't want to face large-scale protests as uh, this winter crisis sets in. Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov, always good to have you with us. Jeremy is managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. To Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and uh, we're going to talk about some stories out of the Asia-Pacific region right now. Uh, we've got a new deal between Russia and China about how uh, those two countries are going to settle payments for natural gas. We are going to talk about how to understand these accusations of hacking. This time it is China accusing the United States of hacking one of its right. academic institutions. We'll ask whether we should all be paying more attention to the Solomon Islands. And uh, if we don't run out of time, take take a look at the Chinese response to this new proposed billion-dollar arms sale uh, by the U.S. to Taiwan. Joining us for all of this is K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific KJ, great to talk to you again. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Let's start with this news from today that Russia and China have struck a deal to settle payments for Russian gas to China, half in rubles and half in yuan. Uh, this is, of course, you know, this is just part of a larger effort, uh, mostly led, I think, by BRICS countries to move some of their bilateral trade out of dollars and into their own currencies. And so I want to ask, you know, in the context of this larger effort, how significant is this step and how much of a risk do China and Russia take, uh, you know, in, in moving any of this trade out of out of dollars into their own currencies? Well, there's always the risk. And prior to the war in Ukraine, uh, the risk was that the U.S. would take military action you know, once again, looking at the big picture, you know, the U.S. has levers of soft and hard power. And among those levers of soft power, significant, was its, uh, you know, claim to being the global reserve currency. Mm -hmm. What we see now is a general movement towards de-dollarization. And the IMF has, you know, noted that, you know, uh, dollar reserves are being diversified into 46 different currency. And this looks to be a one-way street. It's a kind of a, a inevitable process that seems to be happening. But, you know, the political context in the current moment is the U.S. is a little bit like a ship that has run out of fuel. 
And in order to keep itself going, it started to burn the planks of its own ship in order to keep the steam turbines running. And that's essentially what it has been doing with its dollar hegemony. By uh, using sanctions indiscriminately and by appropriating foreign sovereign reserves, it's essentially destroyed the trust, the stability, the liquidity, the value, the fungibility, as well as the inertia upholding U.S. hegemony, which is its uh, capacity to have an endless credit card in order to wage wars. It's cut itself out of that own process. So this is just one more step in that ongoing process of de-dollarization. And, you know, we have to say for, you know, 50-odd years since 1971, you know, it's been a good run. The U.S. has gotten to, uh, you know, spend uh, in a in profligate ways without ever having to pay the piper. Now the piper, the bills are coming due and countries are diversifying away simply because the U.S. has been over-leveraging uh, its uh, coercive uh, uh, control of the financial structure. Yeah, I mean, the, the consequences for the United States of, of this process are going to be interesting to behold and uh, experience for, for those of us here. The other um, news, you know, of the day is is these accusations by China that Washington has broken into computers at Northwestern Polytechnical University, which the United States says does military research for China, and for that reason, uh, is on the U.S.'s entity list of uh, entities that whose access to certain technology is the rest, is restricted. Um, it is not new for the U.S. and China to trade accusations of uh, hacking and cyber attacks. This happens all the time. Uh, but I wonder, you know, given the tensions between the United States and China right now, how uh, concerned should we be if the countries, you know, one, actually increase these kinds of cyber attacks, especially considering uh, when Donald Trump first came to power, there's quite a lot of hubbub over a new—I forget the name of the new military document, but where it basically said, uh, we now open up the possibility that we would respond to a cyber attack with a, with conventional warfare, right? So how concerning is it if China and the U.S. are indeed stepping up cyber attacks on each other? And, uh, you know, if they aren't, if these are just sort of accusations, uh, how how important is that? Is that in itself concerning? I think it is concerning. I don't think there are, you know, significant spikes in the number of attacks. But the thing that is most notable about this incident is that in the past, you know, China has just leveled blanket accusations against the United States. As you know, the U.S. is the, you know, empire of hackers. But this time it's been very, very specific. And, you know, and it's pointed out that, you know, that, uh, you know, that this has come out of the NSA's Office of Tailored Operations, that there were tens of thousands of malicious attacks, but specifically you know, 140 gigabytes of high-value data were stolen, that they used 41 attack weapons and 12, you know, versions of backdoor attacks. Uh, and so this is very, very specific. And I think it points to two things. One is it points out that China's ability to detect and also to call out U.S. cyber, uh, cyber attacks is improving. Uh, and then it also points out that you know, the information warfare uh, will be accelerating on this domain. 
Now, cyber warfare, the U.S. and China are, you know, in this pre-kinetic phase of war against each other. Uh, and that looks like, uh, you know, in the classical hybrid warfare scheme, trade war warfare, information warfare, uh, etc. But cyber war is very much a part of this. And I think, once again, it speaks to the Chinese government's uh, willingness to call out uh, U.S. attacks rather than, you know, kind of close their eyes to it. That signals a change in tone and then also increased on China to detect and possibly to thwart these attacks. And, you know, this is maybe uh, sort of tangential to geo geopolitics in the Pacific, but this military research designation, you know, I, I wonder, the U.S. likes to bring up this scary idea that academic or, or non-state entities do military research for other governments, and that that is something that we should uh, decry and fear. The Department of Defense funds research at U.S. universities across the country and works with private contractors to do research across the country. And so it's just, I, I like to point out when the United States says it's scary when other countries do a thing that we're doing. But really, my question, KJ, is, is, is there anything different about the way the United States military works with universities and other private entities to collaborate on research and development and the way China does it. Is there something malicious in the way China does it compared to the, you know, many, many uh, military contracts that go to universities to conduct research in the United States? I don't think so. I mean, the U.S. funds um, 50 cents of every dollar in university research in engineering, math, computer science and physics. And that's how pervasive it is. If you took out DOD funding from universities, uh, half of the research universities in the United States would collapse. So it's not, you know, it's not unusual. But the, you know, the larger context is that, you know, let's be honest about this. You know, tech and tech development in the West has always followed a very predictable path. That is, initially it's developed for military use. And then it is trickled down into distraction and tools of propaganda. And then eventually, you know, decades later, it might become a productive business approach. And that's true for everything going from the Internet all the way back to the first cranes that were invented, that were used as tools of military, you know, warfare. And so uh, this is just the kind of natural, you know, sequence or progression of uh, technological development in the West. But specifically in China's case, the Northwest Polytechnic University, which was hacked, was working in aeronautics, space research, astronautics, marine technology. Uh, and, you know, some of these are areas of fundamental scientific research. And for the U.S. to call that out uh, as if it was something different from what MIT or Caltech or uh, UC Berkeley is doing is, I think, disingenuous. Yeah, I think so too. And it's, I just think, I do think it is worth uh, pointing this out and and looking under these labels and saying, what does this actually mean? And is this something uh, uniquely nefarious that our enemies are doing, or is this just the way research is conducted? Uh, the other. Very interesting story uh, that we didn't get to cover last week when John and I were away. Uh, it's this story from late last month 
when the Solomon Islands refused a port call by U.S. and British Navy ships and then put a temporary halt on all foreign military vessels entering. Um, and this refusal is described two ways. It, you know, I in a lot of stories, it said that Solomon Islands refused them. The Hill says... The U.S. and British ships declined port calls after what are called bureaucratic delays. But, I mean, it seems like the Solomon Islands, you know, found a way to say no without saying no. I think they issued a statement that they hadn't gotten enough advanced um, information to do the paperwork or whatever. Um, the Solomon Islands are now uh, one by one welcoming back Pacific neighbors like New Zealand and now Australia. Um, but I wanted to ask, you know, what you think is notable about the decision to block this British and uh, American, these British and American ships from from docking and refueling, and also from the uh, bonkers response to it in some quarters in the West, uh, which included pieces like uh, one in the National Interest, which is a Canadian outlet, saying, don't rule out intervention in the Solomon Islands. Uh, so, you know, we have talked about the the attention the Solomon Islands new um, deal with China has gotten. We've talked about U.S. sort of uh, veiled threats to the Solomon Islands about not getting too close to China. Uh, how likely is it for the Solomon Islands to, to be a flashpoint in the future? And how significant is it that it decided to uh, assert its sovereignty this way? Well, I think the most important thing is that Solomon Islands is being uh, weaponized. Uh, by the West. I mean, they have legitimate reasons for opening uh, trade and, uh, you know, uh, tech and economic uh, agreements with China. They've been underdeveloped. They're, you know, massively struggling from a lack of basic infrastructure. And China's offering to bring this to the Solomon Islands in ways that are absolutely essential. Uh, I'm talking about water. I'm talking about electricity, just basic developmental needs. But the fact that, uh, you know, for uh, you know decades, the U.S. neglected the Solomon Islands and uh, didn't even have an embassy there. And then, you know, uh, recently the Solomon Islands switched its diplomatic relations from Taiwan uh, authorities to the uh, Chinese government. And that set everybody aflame. And all of a sudden it became, you know, a federal case that the Solomon Islands had committed an act of treason. Uh, and I think that the Solomon Islands is trying to steer as best as it can a narrow pathway through this diplomatic and geopolitical minefield, which is why it declined the port calls, which were taken, of course, as a slap in the face. But it did open up, uh, you know, port calls for New Zealand, Australia, and Fiji, with which it has legitimate uh, and ongoing security arrangements with, as it does with China. So the Solomon Islands is in a very difficult state. You know, it's trying to, you know, navigate a very, very thin line between, uh, you know, the, the West and Australia, which would really like to weaponize it and also uh, really to punish, to punish the Solomon Islands for switching allegiance from the Taiwan authorities to uh, the PRC. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about sort of hostility in American rhetoric, but uh, Australia right up there, <laughs> pretty pretty quick, pretty quick trigger finger over there as well. They they had some things to say about the Solomon Islands decision. 
Um, another issue that I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, is this uh, approval of a $1.1 billion arms sale to Taiwan. This was announced, I think, just to coincide with the long weekend. I think this, this news came out uh, last Friday. The size of this potential deal seems pretty significant. Uh, the last deal that I think was something like a little over a hundred million, so this is quite a bit more. Uh, I wonder, KJ, if you see anything else notable about this possible sale compared to other military technology transfers to Taiwan? Because, of course, the U.S. sells military technology to Taiwan all the time. Uh, nothing particularly cutting edge. Mostly, you know, a lot of uh, a couple generations back kind of stuff. Is this any change other than the size? I think it is significant. I think it shows a trend in procurement uh, from Taiwan Island towards what is referred to as the porcupine strategy. You know, this is what uh, thinkers like Elbridge Colby and many other people, uh, you know, in the NATSEC community have been saying that Taiwan needs to do, which is to say no more of those boutique luxury armaments that are useless. They're like $5,000 Gucci bags. <laughs> and what you need to do is you need to get, you know, more effective uh, weapons that are, you know, that have the capacity to be asymmetrical uh, and that will uh, raise the cost of any, uh, you know, kinetic engagement for China if it, if it comes to that. On that level, I think we're going to see more and more of these porcupine armaments, largely in the domain of missiles and radar, uh, which is which is what this is about. So, uh, once again, more escalation. And has what has China's response been to this? Uh, well, China is, you know, once again, it is incensed and it considers, as it would rightly, uh, that you know Taiwan is part of its territory, and for the U.S. to weaponize its own territory against itself. Uh, they consider this intolerable, but they're also seeing the very, very specific aspects of this uh, batch of weapons. Now, the thing to understand is that the U.S., you know, this is the, the old, uh, you know, line from Archilochus, is that the U.S. is like a fox, but China is like a hedgehog. And what I mean by that, hedgehog only knows one thing. The fox knows many things. The fox is distributed all over the world, waging war all over the world. The fox uh, is thinly spread. But China's main uh, military development has been around uh, fending off and, if necessary, retaking a Taiwan. It's focused singularly on that. And because of that, I think all of these efforts uh, misunderstand both not only the uh, the, the will uh, and the volition of the Chinese government, but also the fact that it is so deeply focused on one military thing. That was KJ No. He's a member of Veterans for Peace. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist. KJ, is there anywhere our listeners should go to look for some more of your work? Um, Black and Report, uh, LA Progressive, uh, Popular Resistance, and many, many other good progressive websites. Thank you so much for joining us, KJ. We really appreciate it. Hey, John, I've got some breaking news for you. Uh-oh. You see Steve Bannon is supposed to turn himself in. Yeah, uh, tomorrow. This happened very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, this is to face charges, felony charges in New York State, where Republican presidents can't pardon him. Oh yes, <laughs> this is over the the we build the wall, right? Giant scam. It was a scam. It was a total I mean, scam. scam from the start. Did they build anything no. at all? No.
uh, yeah, I think maybe I feel like maybe there was worth. Uh, yeah, like there was a, uh, 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 what am I thinking? A chain link fence or something right. they built. Yeah, I mean, a pretty obvious scam. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have Steve Bannon in court again. That'll be something to watch. Um, also, another story to follow. This is came from CNN, I think, yesterday. Uh, but UPS and the Teamsters are already negotiating their contract. I think their current contract runs out next July. Wow. So this is, you know, far in advance. But there are already rumors uh, that the union isn't happy and uh, there's going to be a strike. Oh, And if boy. UPS goes on strike, this will be one that people will really feel. I, oh, yeah. I think the statistic was uh, UPS carries something like mailed like 6% of households. I don't have the number in front of me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, CNN already looking ahead uh, to the results of these negotiations, because that could be a really serious strike that we are going to see, which would be, you know, that would be would be interesting. You know, I remember I remember when I was a kid, General Motors went on strike and it was such a major strike. And GM was so big that it pushed the country into recession. Yeah, we got to go. There's also uh, off off. Listen, on the other side of this break, I'm going to tell you about a UPS story that we've been ignoring that I think is important. Political Misfits, Radio Sputnik, live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have other things to talk about than UPS, but I just had to finish this conversation that we got interrupted. It is 6% of the nation's GDP is moved in UPS trucks every year. Oh, my God. According to uh, uh, CNN. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. And the other thing that I was saying, this story that I've been seeing pop up that we haven't really talked about on the show, but... Uh, certainly, I, I would think has to be uh, an aspect of these negotiations. Of course, you know, UPS trucks—they don't have doors on them, so there's no AC. Right, right. right. And you have—we've had stories for the last couple of months of the hardships that drivers are enduring, especially when you look at what temperatures are in California right now and the heat waves that we've yeah. experienced. And you have stories of drivers uh, becoming really sick. There, there's a TikTok video of a UPS driver fainting. Yeah. As he's delivering a package because in it's so hot and they've right. been demanding, so, you know, uh, that the company do more to ensure their safety. Right. Or allow yeah. them uh, less productivity if it's going to be, a, you know, you got to drive around in 114 degrees, keep jumping in and out of this hot car. You know what else they do that I found very strange? I read about this in, in The Washington Post. They they have these GPSs inside all of their trucks and they they don't. They 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 discourage. I'll use that word. They discourage their drivers from making left hand turns, right? Because you tend to be stopped, idling, waiting for traffic to cross, waiting for an arrow, whatever. So they say that they can save six million dollars a year if all their trucks only make right hand turns. What? So if you need to go left, you just make three rights, right? And yeah. apparently, they squeezed an extra six million dollars in fuel costs, uh, the savings. Uh, by not permitting their drivers to make left-hand turns. Oh, and this is Sick. how they do it, right? There's Amazon stealing tips from its drivers, sure. right? You think you never, 
And you never get so big that you don't want to take a dollar from a poor person if you possibly can so is the true. lesson here. Anyway, I don't want to hijack this conversation. Okay. I just wanted to finish that one. Well, thank you very much. Constitutional <laughs> scholars and prominent attorneys have already begun commenting publicly about the federal judge who approved a special master to review documents seized from former President Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and they're saying that this judge made a serious legal error. Even Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, said yesterday that the Justice Department should appeal the decision because the judgment was a mistake. Uh, but can the FBI be trusted? You and I had this conversation no, offline. No. The, the FBI cannot be trusted no, yeah. uh, to review the documents and to tell the truth. So we're going to talk about all this and more with Kevin Gastala. Kevin is a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the excellent podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Welcome back, Kevin. Hey, good to be with you both. Kevin, so much to ask you about. The battle lines, I think, are quickly being drawn over this federal judge's decision. And I'll add that the judge is a Trump appointee. This decision to appoint a special master to review classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. On the one hand, many of us believe that the FBI can't and shouldn't be trusted. On the other hand, Trump is claiming executive privilege. And, and listen, I'm not an attorney, but even this is even laughable to me. Because executive privilege is to protect presidential work product from another branch of government, not to protect it from an organization within the executive branch, right? Many constitutional scholars think that this is going to be overturned on appeal. What do you think? And, and let me add one other sort of sub-question to this, Kevin. Um, Shouldn't Trump's request for a special master have come like the day of the raid or the day after the raid? The documents have already been reviewed. It's like letting the, you know, closing the barn door after the animals escape. Is it not? Yeah, I, I think if you genuinely believe that something wrong happened to you, you're always better off acting immediately in order to make the case that you, know, you were unfairly treated uh, so certainly somebody with the kind of resources that Trump has can't make the excuse that they needed more time or they were trying to find attorneys or anything like that. Uh, so I am no supporter of uh, the, the FBI's no. legacy of targeting people, of abusing its power. I do not believe that the investigation that was undertaken by the FBI uh, trying to link Donald Trump to uh, these phantom Russian intelligence officials or people at the top of the Kremlin or wherever they were looking for them was of any value. It was a complete and total waste and a bunch of shenanigans that originated from Hillary Clinton and her people. But that being said, uh, I don't believe that I lose my credibility uh, as somebody who does a lot of his work um, and and identifies with the left, I don't believe I lose my credibility if I tell others that I am interested in this investigation, that I think it's of significance in that Donald Trump's actions uh, do matter, and they matter in the sense that there is a history of which you're a part of these prosecutions under the Espionage Act. And when you look at what's happening, it's extraordinary that we're not even there to the point where we've seen charges issued. And I know there's a question that we're going to get to. So I'll just basically make the point that this judge, who is um, Eileen Cannon, uh, is a Trump appointee, 
She sounds like one of those uh, semi-fascists that Joe Biden has been talking about when he goes to his campaign rallies, because because she's basically told the Justice Department that they can't continue their criminal investigation into Donald Trump (laughs) until she looks over the documents and determines whether they're covered by executive privilege or attorney-client privilege. She comes from the Federalist Society, um, Mm -hmm. seeing that she was appointed or confirmed by the Senate nine days after Donald Trump lost re-election. So she was one of the like parting gifts that Donald yeah. Trump left Democrats. And so, you know, this seems completely out of line. And I don't even know if it's fair to call it an error. I mean, it looks like it's just blatant judicial activism. And it's coming from within the state of Florida, where we've seen this kind of thing that just is just flies in the face of our uh I guess what we consider to be normal conduct on the part of officials, like it's been making headlines that Ron DeSantis just removes school board members that he doesn't agree with and just says, you know, you you disagree with me. You don't agree with my policies. I'm just going to replace you with new people who will say yes to my ideas. And it just seems like she's of the same cloth, like she's she's there to expand uh, the authoritarian um, grip that that a movement of people within this country are are continuing to try and expand and uh, and and grow their influence. The New York Times said today that documents on foreign nuclear capabilities were among those seized at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that news came, of course, as a result of a leak, presumably by the FBI, because they're the ones that are reviewing these documents. Uh, the information. If is if this is true, this would be very highly classified, and Trump's failure to have it secured would be a pretty obvious violation of the Espionage Act. In fact, much of what Trump is being accused of uh, is what Trump has accused Ed Snowden of doing. And you'll recall that during the 2016 campaign, Trump said that Snowden should hang from a tree. So I know that I've asked you this before. But it seems like the landscape is beginning to change. Can you see a scenario where Donald Trump is actually charged with a crime under the Espionage Act? Or is this still, in your mind, uh, an obstruction of justice case? I do think that uh, so you have to ignore the history of Espionage Act cases if you choose to believe that the Justice Department will charge Donald Trump with violating the Espionage Act. And what I mean by that is it's pretty often the case that somebody with Donald Trump's status who, I mean, this is the highest, there's no person (laughs) higher than Donald Trump that I think has ever been accused of this kind of conduct. No way. And typically they're able to just go into a room with these attorneys from the Justice Department and sit down and bargain their way out of this. I mean, they already were trying to do it when they were handing over the boxes of documents. Like those were negotiations that were happening over the materials in order to avoid charges. I mean, we don't know what the private discussions were and the back and forth, but I imagine some of it had to do with, if you don't give these to us, we are going to be in this position where we have to consider charging Donald Trump with crimes. And you wouldn't want that, would you, Donald? And so ultimately they got some. Now, 
There is one scenario here where I think it could move from being an obstruction of justice case to Espionage Act. So I'll just say that I do believe that they have a pretty clear case of obstruction of justice. It was mapped out by the the tactic in which the Justice Department employed to recover the documents, where they actually got an attorney to sign off and say there weren't any more documents in June. And then, uh, in fact, they did get some in August. So that was a lie. And right. that wasn't true. Right. And I think that the I think first and foremost that if I'm an attorney for Donald Trump, I would have my own lawyers right now who are representing me to protect me from prosecution because I think that you could be the fall guy for Donald Trump's corruption. But also, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly conclude here by saying we've seen reports that there are these folders that are marked top secret that are missing files. Right. So my question right now is, does the Justice Department know of all the documents that exist in the universe that Donald Trump could have? And if they are still trying to locate certain documents, because if they don't know exactly what Donald Trump took, then to me, that might take us into a territory where they would charge Donald Trump with violating the Espionage Act just so they could actually figure out what are we missing? These are highly sensitive files. If they're talking, if there's truth to what we've just seen reported, that it involves the defense of a country with nuclear weapons, that then uh, they know about those files. But are there anything on that level that Donald Trump took that they don't know about? And do they have to charge him under the Espionage Act to try and lock down through discovery, um, through the, the legal process, exactly what he has because he hasn't shown them every file that he's taken. Do we really think that Donald Trump, anyone, that there's anything Donald Trump took that only Donald Trump knows about? You know what I mean? Like how many people are in these rooms? How many people are supposed to be keeping an eye on these files? I, I think it's also, you know, it, uh, it's hard for me to believe that uh, whatever is missing and whatever he had, that people haven't known about this for some time, and, and you know, which raises the question of too. why. Yeah. Um, Evan, what's his name? Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob, Trump's two attorneys. They're going to go to prison over this because they're the ones who signed, right? Who signed swearing that all documents had been turned over to the FBI Mm -hmm. back in whenever it was Mm -hmm. January or March or whatever. At the very, very least, they're going to be disbarred. If I were these two attorneys, I would be seriously worried about prison time for this. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump yeah. is going to, I mean, the, the, I'm not going to make a prediction, but it's possible that Donald Trump walks on this because he's Donald Trump. He's a former president of the United States. Yeah. And these, these idiot attorneys end up taking the fall and going to prison. Yeah. I could yeah. see that. Yeah, that, that's what I think. So I kind of feel like I'm making a national security state argument, which <laughs> I'm not very comfortable <laughs> in doing uh, because I don't really care about their interests. But what I'm trying to say is, yes, I know that they all have eyes on these materials, but if they don't know what exact programs were compromised or what like sources and methods are exposed, I mean, John will know this from his own experience, then they basically have to guess and they just have to start like shutting down what they suspect could be compromised, which could be even worse for their own efforts. I mean, I think at some point they really are going to want to know. And the issue is that 
We don't trust the security of Mar-a-Lago, and we know it was vulnerable to infiltration. And we actually, I, I, I don't think anybody can say with certainty that none of these documents were ever seen by anybody. Oh, yeah. No, uh, you're absolutely uh, right. Yeah, the absolutely not. They could have. Been. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, you know, we, just, we know that. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. No, no. It's just to me, it's for, like a Donald Trump cat burglar yeah. is not sitting well yeah. with me. And yeah. so, you know, again, it, this it, this has been a process of many months, right? If you're concerned about the welfare of people in the, you know, because you don't know which programs are have been compromised and you have to just start, you know, it's like, well, you, you sat on this concern right. for some time because it's hard for me to believe that he just spirited out a bunch of stuff and no, no. nobody knew don't about it, it or noticed it was missing. No. And you remember when he first became president, uh, I think it was Benjamin Netanyahu that was visiting the White House and Trump had just seen or just gotten this briefing. He had seen this highly classified information on, I don't know, Iran or Russia or something. And he showed Netanyahu. Oh, look at this. Look at these satellite photos. Look at this special intelligence that I just received. You can't do stuff like that. But. But you know he is, and but you have you know to know he's he would have been it. doing it the whole time. That's right. Whoever's golfing that's at Mar-a-Lago. How he treats, yes. that, exactly. <laughs> that's how he treats classified information. He just doesn't take it seriously. And I think we're seeing more of that. And so I guess the it comes back to the question of like what the, the timing of of all of this, yeah. right? This is all we all you know all, all of these concerns are legitimate. Oh yeah. It's just I feel like they were also legitimate like ten months ago, without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Kevin, uh, Lindsey Graham, the, the show horse from uh, South Carolina, made an asinine statement a few days ago uh, saying that if Trump is charged with a crime, there will be violence in the streets and that violence would be justified. Do you see this ending in violence? We're in kind of uncharted waters here. But do you think that these Trumpkins are serious enough that they would actually take to the streets? I don't know. I I'm not sure that they need Trump anymore. I mean, there there's there's been enough. I would agree with that. Castasizing of them that there there are people who are going to be able to populate, and they're running for office. They're running for office. Yeah. And I just I don't I don't I don't think losing Trump means that you have to go burn Capitol Hill to the ground. Uh, but I know that hearing that kind of comment. What I think Lindsey Graham is deliberately doing is trying to raise the specter of another January 6th kind of an event. And and he's fear mongering. He's basically saying to the Justice Department, don't do your jobs or else the mob is going to come for you. And I'll I'll personally think you deserve it. Right. I think that's right. Um, eight former secretaries of defense and five former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff wrote an open letter yesterday saying that, quote, political polarization and other social strains are creating an exceptionally challenging environment for maintaining the traditional relationship between the military and its civilian leadership, unquote. They note that the 2020 election was the first time in more than 100 years that the peaceful transfer of power was actually disrupted. And they don't blame any specific political party, but they say that they believe the situation will get worse before it begins to get better, which I think you just uh, alluded to. It seems to me that it's the civilian leadership in this case that has moved out of the political mainstream, while the uniformed military, crazy as it might sound, has not. Or am I misreading this? 
So I'm not very familiar with uh, this open letter, but what I can comment on is that the the fact that the the military continues to position itself. So this has been a hallmark of the last five to six years. We have these people who either they're in the military or you'll have these officials who came from the FBI or maybe they're even former CIA and they step out and uh, they 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 do that whole thing again. Like, I, I don't know why I feel like I'm just going to keep referencing Joe Biden's speech, <laughs> but they're they're doing that whole battle for the soul of America shtick when they write these like open letters. Yeah. And they they act like uh, the republic's going to fall if they don't step up and defend us. And I just think they have this really overblown sense of their importance in in this country. And I don't think people are listening to them. And I really, you know, it, it's not that I don't doubt that there is something happening that is uh, b- uh, b- bad for us and destructive and that we need to reckon with it. I just don't think they're going to be the ones to save us. I don't think they have any credibility to save us. Nobody really wants to listen to them lecture everybody on democracy. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, I've been in, I had been in London for much of the last week and a half uh, speaking with journalists there. And I was struck by the defeatism that I, that I heard surrounding the Julian Assange case. British journalists say that it was never possible for Julian to receive fair treatment, either in the British courts or in the British press. The simple reason is that the UK is Washington's political lapdog, and British leaders do what Washington tells them to do. That's why there's been so little coverage in the UK press around Julian's plight. Um, I honestly don't see much of a difference here in the US either. Uh, None of the major press outlets here consider Julian to be a journalist worthy, at least, of protection or support. Do you think that might change once he's extradited? Does it change if Donald Trump is charged with a national security crime? Or uh, does Julian get no real uh, support from the, the mainstream press outlets? Personally, I believe that the politics in the last couple of years have only made it more of a certainty that Julian Assange will be extradited to the U.S. and put on trial. We see zero members of Congress, whether they're representatives or senators, willing to stick up and stand up on principle in the way that civil liberties, human rights, or press freedom organizations have been willing to put out statements. We've even seen Although their newspapers are constantly attacking Assange and demeaning his character, we've seen the editors and chiefs of these uh, major newspapers actually come out against the Assange prosecution. Uh, but yet you can't get anybody in Congress to follow or say a yeah. word about what they don't like about this. And I think that with the war in Ukraine and then now with the potential of Donald Trump being charged under the Espionage Act. I mean, actually, we could just say the fact that the Justice Department invoked the Espionage Act to go in and con- and, enge- and execute a search warrant is enough to really make this difficult because, once again, we're linking Assange and Trump together by a kind of association. It happened with the 2016 election. We had all these lies about how Uh, Julian Assange wanted Trump to be president just because he said mean things about Hillary Clinton. And then everyone got this idea that he was some kind of like right wing supporter 
of Donald Trump's project, which he never was. And that is, I think, the way that it will play out with liberal Democrats now is that they'll say, oh, well, we went after Assange with the Espionage Act and Assange was a Trump supporter. And it makes sense that now Trump's getting it and he's going to be charged under the Espionage Act. These people don't really think that uh, complex. They don't have like these thoughts that really like understand and recognize the different nuances of the Espionage Act. They literally hear espionage in the law's name and they think that that's what has happened, that Donald Trump has probably been stealing secrets and sharing them with other countries, right. even though we don't have evidence. And they'll think the same about Julian Assange, even though there isn't any evidence. So true. The Republicans are widely expected to win control of the House of Representatives in November. I checked the latest numbers today, and they haven't changed much in the last couple of weeks. Uh, several senior Republicans have already said that they will be focused on investigating Joe and Hunter Biden and that any new legislation for the remaining two years of Biden's term is unlikely. But the Republicans have set a precedent of ignoring congressional subpoenas, refusing to testify, challenging subpoenas in court. Um, so what's to stop the Democrats from doing the same thing? Is that what we're looking at in the next two plus years? Legislative gridlock? Uh, investigations. And then on the Senate side, nothing really happening, but Biden continuing to get his judges approved. Yeah, I think we can look forward to Benghazi part three right. or some kind of series of hearings that 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 don't bear any fruit. I, I think that Hunter Biden is really the scapegoat for the Republican Party right now. And, you know, we've I, I've been trying to intelligently engage in this conversation about, you know, whether we should be concerned about some kind of threat of fascism within the United States. I'll just say that when a political force has us focusing our attention on people that really have a minimal amount of power, in which I think Hunter Biden really has a minimal amount of power, um, that they are, they're doing so because they want to unify us around certain people that they can you know, convince us are, are the reasons why we have uh, certain sets of problems in the country. Um, and, and there's no accident that, that they're spending all this time, that the right wing media is spending so much time on Hunter Biden. And, and you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems likely that they're going to win the House of Representatives. I know I know why that's being predicted. But I will just raise this counterpoint before we go forward, which is to say that um, a lot of the polling is showing that one of the biggest mistakes the Republicans could have committed was um, allowing the Supreme Court yeah. to overturn Roe v. and Roe v. Wade before the November election day, and and that that's actually um, just lose. They're losing so much support among women across the country because of this. And I I think you know in the end they might still get the House, but it definitely means the Senate is not looking good for Republicans. Yeah. In fact, uh, 538.com raised their prediction that the Democrats keep the Senate to 85%. So I think you're right. I think that, well, it, and it's 65, 35 Republicans in the House. I think the Republicans probably win the House, but I just don't see the Republicans uh, taking the Senate. We'll see. So uh, last question for you, give us the latest with Julian Assange and how things are going with your book, which I, I read in the past week and really is is 
the most comprehensive book on this uh, case that exists out there. More than 500 footnotes, which just blew my mind when I saw it. Uh, tell us about the latest. I uh, I did heavy research for it. So you yeah. know, for Assange, I, I don't see a lot of recent developments other than it may be of interest to people who are listening to your show to know that Mexico continues to be one of the only supporters of uh, Julian Assange, at least uh, Andres Manuel Lopez, Lopez Obrador, the president, who has invited the relatives of Assange and Che Guevara to attend wow. the Independence Day celebrations next week. Um, this is the real deal. This person who leads Mexico is not faking his support for Assange. My book is going pretty well, and I expect to have it go to the printer uh, before the month is over. I've been able to get some good endorsements from it from people like you. Um, really My pleasure. Um, humbled by the different individuals who have been willing to support the book. And yeah, it's 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 really a great opportunity. And I, I put it together. I'll just close by saying I put together this guide and it's intended for this imminent moment that is going to come next year when Julian Assange will probably arrive in the U.S. on a plane. And when that happens, I want people to have a book that not only documents the abuses of human rights that have gone on uh, while he has been in arbitrary detention, but also just deconstructs every aspect of the U.S. case that's possible to unpack so that people don't have any questions about it so they know exactly what's going on. And when the prosecutors enter the courtroom and they block Assange's attorneys from saying certain things, we will know what they're trying to say and what they want to say because it'll be right there in the book. That's right. Well, thanks for joining us, Kevin Gastala. Kevin is a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned and we'll come back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here in the studio with John Kiriakou. And boy, we have some strange tech stories to get to yeah, today. I'll say. We have two stories. One is uh, the first one look, it's important, it's dystopian, uh, it is more about secret surveillance tools that the police have their hands on that we don't know about and we're going to get into. But that's sort of you know, we, we learn uh, there's a sort of steady trickle of information that comes out about these secret tools. So important story, I think, but not the weird stuff that is going to come afterward, which is this new uh, femtech site where uh, conservative makes me shake my head. Conservative women want you to put information about your menstrual cycle into a new venture backed by Peter Thiel of Palantir. So nothing dodgy <laughs> going on there. Anyway, we're going to get to both of them with Chris Garatha. There are resident technologist and co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks for joining us. 
Oh, great to be back with you to talk about dystopia. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Let's get into it. This is this is how we do it. Uh, fog reveal. This is a tracking tool that not you, Chris, but some of our listeners have probably never heard of, but uh, your local police definitely have. It's been called a mass surveillance program on a budget by a an advisor at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a digital rights uh, and privacy advocacy group. The way fog reveal works, and maybe uh, I am not a tech expert, right? So maybe this is not uncommon, but I find it chilling. According to this AP story, uh, what fog reveal does is it, it collects advertising identification numbers from cell phone apps like uh, Waze, uh, Starbucks, which I, I didn't know that was an app that people were using, but lots of other apps that allow ads to be targeted based on a person's movements and interests, and then they sell that information to companies like Fog. So I don't know. There's this double layer of dystopia here happening where it's targeted ads that are helping people track us, right? So you you can't escape advertising, and you also can't help but create a trail of advertising behind you that then the police can follow. Uh, it's it's very strange to me. So talk to us about this tool and uh, and why it matters that police have access to it and aren't telling us that. Yeah, I mean, let's just lay out how this works. Imagine that you are uh, trying to find the nearest Starbucks. You open up the app and it says, you know, can I use your location? And you say, well, I want to know where the closest Starbucks is. So sure. Yeah. You find it, you make your order, all of that. And then a few months later, you get a call from the police uh, or at best or at worst, a warrant, uh, you know, for your arrest or for questioning. And they say, well, we know that you were in the area of a crime that happened. Um, Maybe it's three weeks before you even went to that Starbucks and completely unrelated. And you wonder, how did they figure out that I was there? Well, it's because apps like the Starbucks app, like Waze and Pretty much any app you have on your phone uh, can track your location. In some cases, whether you give it permission or not to varying levels of granularity, you know, maybe not the street level, but certainly city level. Uh, And then they sell that information to companies like Ventel, or maybe there's a middleman in between. There are so many ways that this information gets packaged up and sold and resold and then shared. And then Fog Data Science, this company that was founded in 2016 by Homeland Security officials from the Bush administration, Mm -hmm. we should mention, goes and uh, buys up that information from companies like Ventel, which exist pretty much only to gather and sell that kind of information. They take it and then they say, here, police, you can look at you know, any advertising ID, any location, and then track those phones months into the future or the past from Uh. the given date that you choose to look into. Why is this so important? You know, we, I feel like we talk about this location tracking all the time. Mm -hmm. This is the latest way that police and other law enforcement are trying to get around the protections that were given to us first by the fourth amendment. And second, by the Carpenter ruling, the Carpenter case went to the Supreme court and in 2017, the court said that in order to get location data from your cell phone provider, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, whoever, that a valid warrant 
has to be provided. They said, in fact, that the cell phone at this point is such a necessity for modern life that it is an extension of the self. And so the third party doctrine uh, did not apply so that you are relying, you know, you can't just rely, you know, give the information to your cell phone company. And then they say, well, you're, uh, you know, we can just give it to the police because this is our information. That was a significant ruling for privacy. But the police have been going around that and saying, well, that had nothing to do with uh, location tracking services or location providers, data providers like Ventel and the, the thousands of others who you know we don't know about because they work in the background and we don't deal with them day to day. So we've heard that this has happened. You know, Google certainly has been one of the largest offenders here in uh, allowing police to execute what are called geofence warrants. But this is something that pretty much any police department for a few thousand dollars can buy uh, and get that information without having to request it from Google or Apple or anyone. And this brings up, you know, some you bring up some issues that I wanted to ask about, which is the adequacy of our current protections to to meet the technology of the day. Right. Uh, the, the the Fourth Amendment, this carpentry ruling, which you say, you know, police will argue uh, affects a sort of narrow subset of, of the idea of uh, technological privacy, data privacy, but not location tracking. How do we, I guess, uh, update the text of our, uh, you know, of the way these protections are enumerated, a protection against unlawful search and seizure uh, to accommodate, you know, this sort of technological reality? Do we need to do that? We absolutely need to. And the the law needs to be updated to consider these kinds of things. I mean, I believe that you know so much of what we use online is right now based on advertising dollars, of course. So, you know, knowing where you are is a key part at this point in the in the online marketing cycle of advertising and targeted advertising. You don't want to get an ad for somewhere that's you know five hundred miles away. Fine, but they track not just the general city that you're in, but you know where you're going, what neighborhood you're in, what business you're in. Even uh, if you're, you know, if you're in a certain restaurant, if you're at a certain pizza place or store, that's the level of granularity again that that they can get with these location services. So we do need updated regulations to say that. First of all, I mean, I think ideally, like they don't, they aren't able to get this kind of information. like And by they, I mean these advertising companies overall, you know, not just the police, but the advertising companies mm-hmm. have no reason to get, you know, the, to say that I'm going to, you know, Domino's versus Pizza Hut. Uh, that's none of their business, really. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the kind of thing that we really, you know, need to be encouraging and pushing for. But also we need a, 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 pri- a, a system and a, a culture that values privacy. You know, we have this whole, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, part of, I don't know, my happiness is not having everyone know where I am all the time, not having, you know, advertisers or the police being able to know that four months ago when I've forgotten where I was on a certain day at a certain time that I was in a certain location. That It's, it's so invasive. And it's done both for advertising, but also for control of the people uh, in order to continually criminalize us. Yeah, I mean, I would think that falls pretty squarely under the category of, of liberty. The other question, and I, I don't want to ask you to you know, suddenly whip up a, a law degree here, but um, this AP story that alerted me to this whole issue notes that the, you know, uh, 
bog reveal is being used by police across the country, but it's rarely mentioned in court records. And defense attorneys say, if we don't know that this was used to track and locate our client, we can't properly defend our clients. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, what kind of defenses there are to put up against these tools or why, I guess, why it is important to know that this is the way police got your information, got your uh, location information. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I uh, I might live near Yale, but I am not a lawyer. <laughs> um, in the you know, in the process of any court hearing, you know, you want to know the provenance of evidence against you. How do the how did the police get the information that they have? Was it through an illegal search? Was it a legal search? What is the chain of evidence? Like, what is the, the the chain of custody for any evidence that they have? Can you question the company and the engineers at it? or the CEO to talk about how they gather that information. And that's absolutely lost, especially if the the police do not, or the, you know, the DA doesn't share the fact that this information was gathered this way with the defendant. Is that legal or not? I, again, I'm not going to say, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it's, it's concerning for just our right to a, a fair trial that this is happening. All right. Now we're getting to the, I have a lot of feelings about this next story. Uh, and very complicated ones. Um, this is about noted internet villain and billionaire Peter Thiel. His company is the biggest funder in a new effort by conservative women's magazine, Evie, Evie, I do not know how to pronounce it. it that's what it looks like. Uh, this magazine uh, or this new effort is purportedly to help women optimize their physical and mental health and their fitness and their lifestyles uh, by giving a lot of detailed information about their periods to this new femtech company that's called 28 that's affiliated with this conservative women's magazine. And this is, of course, raising eyebrows because information about who is bleeding and when is increasingly interesting to politicians and law enforcement. Uh, and, you know, the, the presence of Teal's backing uh, is drawing attention as well, because Peter Thiel, of course, already has a sinister data trawling spy adjacent company in his portfolio uh, as the founder of Palantir. Uh, and so, you know, talk to us a little bit about this, this how this femtech company would work uh, and why people are concerned about it and about Thiel's involvement in particular. Oh, there is so much to be concerned about here, Michelle <laughs> and John. I, I don't, I barely know where to start. I mean, let's first of all talk about Peter Thiel for a second. Um, and I noticed after scrolling through the 28 website that there, as far as I can tell, there are no pictures of black women on the website anywhere. Oh, it's very That's white. Yeah, I noticed me. that. Yeah, very white. Uh, but it's interesting to me because Peter Thiel has supported and promoted a Senate candidate, Republican Senate candidate uh, in Arizona named Blake Masters, who is loved by the far right and believes in the white replacement theory. Mm. So that connection there, very interesting to me. Um, I, I think that, you know, that's the kind of politics that we have to pay attention to when we're looking at any kind of app like this, uh, website and service like this. If you look at the, that their FAQs, their frequently asked questions on the, the 28 by EV website, uh, they say nothing about encryption or data security. They just say they use the most cutting edge technology and services available today. They say, we'll never sell your personal information, but they don't say that they, you know, 
they don't, that's not a legal document. That's just a right. frequently asked question. It's not a privacy policy in any way. Those could change at any time. So it's extremely concerning when you have somebody as radical as Peter Thiel and as rich and influential as he is to have data on the cycles of potentially, I mean, they want millions and millions of people to use this, uh, First of all, we are now in the post-Roe period where the police can get your information from period tracking apps. And they mm-hmm. can say, when was the last cycle? How long was it? Uh, have you missed a couple? And then you had another one, which is also totally normal for many people. But that could say, they could say, well, did you have an abortion? Did you have a miscarriage? Anything like that. So the idea of even starting this app right now. Um, but also, I mean, this app is promoting or this service is promoting people getting off of hormonal birth control, which then, again, ties back into this thing we're seeing with Peter Thiel and Elon Musk that, you know, we have to actually increase the population. And what they don't say is the white population, but that's exactly what they mean, <laughs> what, they, what we've been saying. Um, and so, I mean, the development of of this service, the promotion by Evie or Evie, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name. I've only seen it online. Right. Um, is really like the the a combination of this, you know, ultra right fascism, uh, race and racism, uh, along with the the surveillance state. I suspect it's Evie evoking Adam and Eve. That would be my guess. Oh, my first guess. Right. Yeah, it's so it's, it's a, the idea that right at a time when everyone is going. Get this information o- offline. Uh, Peter Thiel jumps in and says, "Here, please give me all the information about your periods." Uh, it's wild. But the other thing that that makes this so complicated is that you know I think there is an actual need for more conversation about this kind of thing, right? Like there is a need for for uh, people to be able to talk about you know what what does happen. I don't know. This is a constant refrain of mine that women really do not get taught what happens in their bodies uh, in a sort of um, coherence and like uh, structured way, right? Sex ed- education classes are uh, largely about how penises work, honestly, uh, and you don't learn anything. And there, there really isn't a lot of space for the kinds of conversations about, uh, you know, hormone fluctuations and mood and frustrations with hormonal birth control or what, what side effects are normal or what isn't or what perimenopause is like. And, you know, understanding uh, what's the difference between going crazy and just sort of experiencing uh, predictable uh, aspects of, of, you know, what it means to have a menstrual cycle. And it is such a shame that these spaces for these important conversations are being, one, ceded to the likes of the Peter Thiels of this world and the, the conservative women who are behind this um magazine, but also that, you know, at a time when it is potentially dangerous to have this information in the cloud because of its accessibility to law enforcement or whatever, it feels like, uh, you know, it's a segment of the population that is being uh, barred from using the internet and these communication tools for for one of the forces of good that they can be, if you know what I mean, Chris. So it's I think it's so it's funny because I was I'm looking at this website and thinking, well, yeah, these are all things that people should talk about, and it's not because everyone should get off hormonal birth control or you know you need to like 
do a, a feminine workout because you're getting a period or so. You know what I mean? It gets a little mystical in there. But there are legitimate points, and it's so frustrating, I think, to see this, you know, to see all of this land ceded to to conservatives to control this conversation. Yeah, that's another thing I wanted to, to point out about it is, you know, along with this, you know, extreme wealth that Peter Thiel has, where we are seeing this mystical, you know, become one with your body kind of thing hmm. that you actually do often see in far right circles. They have this, you know, very weird connection to mysticism. Uh, and that is part of this, too. But yeah, and wellness. Mean, we could be. Yeah. And wellness. Yeah. But we could be using this technology for good, like sexual health, just like the rest of the health, mental, physical. It's so important. But, you know, so many people are saying, you know, I can't trust a website, an app, a service and for good reason. But we could do so much good to help people identify, you know, trends in their own health to help people, you know, just take care of themselves. Uh, you know, things like things that are as as innocuous as just like the, the you know, those apps that remind you to go drink some water. I mean, yeah. those are great. But, you know, once you get farther than maybe you're a little dehydrated, it's scary to think about what this these apps are collecting, you know, on you. What if, let's go back to the first story, you connect uh, where you are and then the police get, you know, what you, you know what your body temperature was that day or what you were going to a doctor for. I mean, it's completely, it's terrifying to think about what is and could be being done, you know, with all of this information, while we have the technology that could be used to benefit us so much if it weren't for the profit motive and the surveillance state. Speaking of surveillance state, I know we're just about done with with our conversation with Chris, but Chris, I wanted to tell you, I, I was in Israel for much of this past week, and I thought of you for a very specific reason. I checked into a hotel in East Jerusalem, nice business hotel. And um, as I was checking in, they said, you know, the restaurant's up on the top floor and the gym is at the first floor or whatever. And for our VIP guests, Mr. Kiriaku, we have free international calling from the room. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, how nice. How generous. <laughs> Like, what do you route it through Mossad? <laughs> yeah. And I said to my my traveling companion, I said, Chris Garafa wouldn't like this one bit. <laughs> I, I am glad that you did not make those calls, John. I think that was the smart thing to do. You know, everyone's uh, situation is different and everyone has the concerns that they have to take when they're thinking about their personal security. And I think yours are certainly... Uh, uh, you know, not the same as everyone else's, but always err on the side of caution. Always. Chris, always. I want to squeeze in one last question here. Uh, it's just a sort of a, a, a initial response, but there's a story in The Intercept today uh, about a transcript of a discovery hearing in a lawsuit against Facebook over mishandling private user information, uh, where two engineers re repeatedly just say, we have no idea where your data goes. I can't tell you if anybody on earth can possibly trace where data goes once it enters into this system. Uh, I don't believe there's a single person who exists that could answer that question, uh, what replied one engineering director uh, when he was asked, you know, how do you, is there a, a definitive accounting of where people's personal data might be stored in Facebook's uh, dozens of subsystems? And I want, just wonder if you've been following this story at all or uh, if, if that 
you know, sounds sounds about right, that once you put this data into the system, God knows where it goes. It, it sounds entirely uh, accurate for Facebook based on what we know. This is coming out of the uh, lawsuit around Cambridge Analytica. Um, I have not read the entire transcript. It's 830 pages. Oh, so, Chris, you know, so uh, disappointed. Maybe, maybe by tomorrow. Call me back tomorrow. But uh, you know, I, I think it's entirely reasonable to to think this. And these are two senior, you know, high level engineers at Facebook who would know the layout of these systems. And it really reminds me of the the Twitter whistleblower Mudge, who you know said that uh, you know no one had you know had a full understanding of how the Twitter systems work from a, an infrastructure level. You know, what are these companies doing? These services that we rely on so much for everyday life, for communications, for entertainment, they are just playing games effectively and, you know, they benefit a lot, but we get hurt. You know, not being able to know where the information is stored and what different databases and places it's stored means they can't really delete it. So when you delete your account or, you know, anything like that, are they really deleting it? You know, they say they are, but we we know that this information lives on forever. So I think getting some of these details, some of these technical details you know, is going to be really crucial as we watch this case go forward. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's not a question of will they delete it. It's can can they? And the answer is no, because nobody knows where it all is. It's wild. Well, <laughs> hey, we're in the sort of. Uh, teenage years of the internet, I guess, and it's it's proving to be interesting. Uh, that was Chris Garafa. Chris, we won't hold you any longer. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can go to find the work you're doing with Covert Action Bulletin? Yeah, go to covertactionmagazine.com, click the link for the bulletin, or find it in any of your podcast players. Uh, next week, we'll be doing an episode on the No Tech for Apartheid campaign, so I'm really looking forward to that. Right on. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Uh, John, I think we'll just skip this last break here. There have been a, sure. bunch, of, uh, a bunch of interesting stories coming up that I'm kind of hoping we can get into more tomorrow. Uh, did you see this ruling on religious freedom? Yes. Yeah. So uh, a judge in Texas ruled that asking employers or making employers provide coverage for drugs that prevent the transmission of HIV, which right. is uh, uh, PrEP, PrEP is the is the, the class. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of a word for the term. Yeah. You know, PrEP is the slang term or whatever for them. Uh, making employers provide coverage for these drugs violates the religious rights of employers. Stunning. It is. I mean. These are drugs that prevent the transmission of a disease that, while much more controllable now, uh, can still kill you. And they're saying, I mean, I think because these drugs are primarily taken by gay men, uh, that that's a violation of their religious freedom. But I don't even know if that—I mean, I guess that's the case, that they're primarily— used by gay men. I don't even know how common... I just don't see where people get off judging others and deciding, you know what? I'm not going to give you this this life-saving... We're not going to cover this life-saving drug. That's right. Because I don't like the way you're leading your life. I don't like your lifestyle. And I'm your your employer. It's wild. And again, we wouldn't have to answer all these questions if we didn't rely on employer-based health insurance. This is a conversation I just had yesterday. But You're this, exactly right. You know, so this, so this religious freedom in the United States, as as it so often is, is just turning into uh, an opportunity for people to uh, erode the rights of others who don't share their yeah. religious views. Yeah. Just awful. Pretty wild. Yes. 
Uh, what else have I got here? Oh, uh, <laughs> Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen might break up. John. You know, as crazy as it sounds, <laughs> I actually feel sorry for them. Oh yeah, I, I hate Tom Brady because he's a cheater and he's won more more uh, Super Bowls than the Pittsburgh Steelers have. But mm-hmm. that's just my own personal thing. Mm-hmm. I've told you the story. I, I actually met Giselle Bündchen at a party uh, one one time and had not the vaguest idea who in the world she was. Was she very beautiful in person? Not really. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, not really. Take that, Giselle. <laughs> <laughs> and then my girlfriend at the time, who was an agent for at this modeling company, ING, says, oh, uh, I see you met Giselle. And Giselle's standing right there. And I said, yeah, she's a model. <laughs> That's great. I asked her, what do you do for a living? That she is... says, oh, I'm a model. When I said, was oh, this? 2000, summer of 2000. Okay, so maybe she was like not, I don't remember when Giselle uh, was a, a really big thing. I was told she was pretty big by At then. At the time, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you know, this is a, they're, they're having a, a problem that so many married couples have. He's at the point where it's the end of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, he keeps putting it off for another year, another year, another year after having told his wife, I'm going to. I'm going to retire and yeah. spend more time at home. And she's had enough. And I, I just kind of feel sorry for them. Well, that's really nice of you to put aside, <laughs> put aside your sports-based loathing uh, to feel for them as human beings. Another actually kind of important story, or at least a, a illustrative story, I think, is this one in stat about Pfizer refusing to share COVID vaccines with researchers for next generation studies. Uh, So these researchers are trying to look into next generation vaccines to continue to protect against COVID-19 as it evolves. Uh, But they can't get Pfizer to relinquish the patent, uh, the formula for its vaccine from its uh, greedy little hands. It is not sharing its vaccines Uh. for research uh, and it's legal. It's legal and in line with the company's commercial interests, according to a law professor at Villanova that Stat hunted down to comment on the article. Um, uh, This is a great quote. If you use this thing that has just been patented, what you're doing doesn't matter. Even if you're trying to cure cancer, the law is pretty rigid. Again, these great heroic companies that developed these vaccines to come in and save us from save us all from covid and they're all supposed to be their you know our heroes and whatever and look how far their their altruism extends yeah. it's you know yeah, it doesn't not too it, terribly it doesn't far. none of it was altruistic from from the very start uh, i think it's you know it's just important to remember what these companies actually are and what they actually do you know i i was in an uber last night and uh uh, uh, Tom Friedman over here. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and my, my Uber driver told me that she had just returned from uh, Buenos Aires. And I said, oh, how nice. I went there and it was beautiful and people were friendly and the food was great. And she said, oh, I went to have uh, some dental work done. Mm-hmm. I said, you went all the way to Argentina to get dental work oh, done? Oh, hell yeah. One tenth of the cost of what her dentist wanted to charge her in Fairfax, Virginia. Yeah. She said that she flew all the way to Argentina for two weeks, stayed in a hotel, had the dental implants done, flew all the way back, considered it a two-week-long vacation, and still spent less than half of what she would have spent out of pocket here in the United States. USA. Mm -hmm. USA. That's all we got time for, folks. We're going to be back tomorrow. Thanks to all of our guests who joined us and our engineers and producers as usual. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you as always for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.